Hello and welcome to The Selection Show. I'm CTY Selector News Editor Ian Heath and with me today I have Anna Rosenberg who is the Head of Geopolitics at the Amundi Investment Institute. Thanks for joining us Anna. Thank you, it's a pleasure to be here. We live in a changing world right now and geopolitical issues have understandably become more concern for investors and the broader population alike. Today with Anna I'm going to talk through what she feels are some of the biggest issues that we face at this time. We'll start with the current crisis that is going on in the Middle East. We've seen a serious flare-up of violence in Israel and Gaza, Anna. Could you round up quickly what implications you feel this will have economically and for investors? Sure. So as long as this current violence stays localized in Israel and Gaza, um, with occasional skirmishes along the Lebanese border and in other countries in the Middle East, the economic impact is likely going to be contained. We have seen that the impact has not been you know, very dramatic on oil. We have seen some impact, of course, on the tourism sector, on airlines, of course, on defense. But as long as it stays localized, the economic ramifications should not be significant beyond the Middle East and beyond Israel. If the conflict goes beyond the current local remit and becomes a broader regional conflict or possibly an international conflict, for example, through Iran getting more actively involved and then the US getting more actively involved, then of course the economic ramifications could be significant, especially in regards to, to oil and gas. And what do you think are the political ramifications of the current conflict? And also, what role does the relationship between Saudi Arabia and Iran play here? So, of course, there are many political ramifications. Firstly, we have to keep in mind that how the situation has developed in the first place. We had seen over the past couple of years a stabilization in the Middle East and the stabilization of relationship between Israel and its uh, Arab neighboring states. And one normalization um, was a, a specific problem for Iran that was the, the normalization between Saudi Arabia and Iran, sorry, Saudi Arabia and Israel, because it, it would have isolated Iran in the region. And so Iran had an interest in disrupting this normalization process, okay? So we are now in a new political reality where we had a stable Middle East and now we are in a, in a much more volatile Middle East again. So that's uh, clearly one of the big, um, the big political developments. Beyond the current conflict, we have a heightened risk of an escalation with Iran. Even if the current conflict is under control, you could see Israel deciding it's time to act against Iran's nuclear program, for example. Um, and that again brings in the much bigger risk that I outlined earlier, which would see bigger economic ramifications in regards to oil, etc. Another important political consideration of the current dynamics, if they stay local or if they go international, is that this is not good for, for Biden in the US in an election year, next year. His approval ratings amongst Democrats have gone down already significantly. Mm -hmm. And the fact that US troops are already in the spotlight in the Middle East um, is bad news for him, right? Um, because he will be criticized for the foreign policy there. So clearly, um, Russia, China, and Iran are taking advantage of the US being weakened on the geopolitical stage right now because of all of this. So there are huge geopolitical ramifications. Okay, moving on to another sphere. Um, Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022. Uh, it's fair to say the economic impact um, that was felt around the world was huge. Um, is it possible we could feel another shock like this in the near future, or will that be the worst one that we face? 
So I mean, clearly it's always possible that we see um, new shocks. We are in an environment where there are a lot of our geopolitical um, predictions are seeing an increased risk of escalation. Yeah? But when we're looking at this specific conflict in the Middle East right now, it, it, if it stays local, um, I, I, we don't expect that the economic impact would be very dramatic, as I outlined, beyond Israel. If it includes Iran, we would have this escalation that we talked about. Um, how this could pan out is um, Lebanon being drawn in more deeply into this current conflict, um, which would be very disruptive economically for Lebanon and politically for Lebanon, mm -hmm. and which would also increase the risk that Iran comes to aid Hezbollah in Lebanon. Mm. Yeah. So, as I said, this then could lead to a, a direct clash between the U.S. and Iran and the U.S. Um, being targeted by Iranian proxies in the region, which could then have a much bigger ramification on that, that could lead to a global shock for food, for um, for gas and for oil. So that is uh, from this situation right now, the, 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 the next most likely big shock that we could see. But apart from that, of course, there are other risks out there. As I said before, we still have the tensions between the US and China. We have elections in Taiwan next year. Mm. So um, unfortunately, there are plenty of risks to occupy us and 2024 we'll see more of them than we have seen in this year. Okay, let's turn to um one of the tensions you just mentioned there, and that's the US and China rivalry. Um, this has really spooked investors uh, this year. Um, so I was just wondering, like, well, what's your take on this? Do, do, you, do you feel this is just post posturing, or do you think there's a genuine risk that this could turn into a real decoupling between those two uh, really large powers? And you know, perhaps even people have spoken about a potential hot war in, in Ukraine, in Taiwan, rather. So in a way, it's a, it's a combination of all these three things that you just said. Um, on posturing, the US and China are in a great power competition. Um, and it's, it's a new Cold War, right? But the key difference to the old Cold War is that both sides are economically too intertwined to holistically decouple. So that's not going to happen. Um, we have, you know, in, in, in game theory, you have a game of chicken here right now between the US and, and, and China. Both players know that the one side has to yield whenever it is provoked by the other. Because if, they, if the other side does not yield, mm -hmm. the risk of a clash is too big for both sides. Okay, so that's the posturing element to your question. Um, so before we move yeah. on, could you just explain what game theory means for yes, the listeners? Yes, of course. So in, in you know, game theory is a basically behavioral science, and there is this game of chicken, which is seen as a tactic between two players mm. um, who constantly provoke each other. Mm -hmm. yeah? um, and they, but they know that if they don't uh, yield, if the other side does not yield when provoked, the outcome for both is the worst possible outcome. So if you constantly provoke each other, one side always has to stop a side because mm -hmm. if you don't, as I said, there is this possible clash. So I think this is a really nice um, metaphor for the US-China mm -hmm. conflict because we are having a, a possible um, conflict between two nuclear powers. So as I said before, this is a Cold War type of scenario, right? Mm. But the thing about the nuclear invention, the invention of the nuclear weapon, was that it came across with the, with the overkill effect. So everyone knows it, it's too costly to, to, to use a nuclear weapon, mm -hmm. right? So that actually disincentivizes great powers in a great power competition from going into direct war. Mm. 
before we had a nuclear weapon, great power competition usually ended in direct warfare. Mm. Uh, but we have not seen that since. We have seen an uptick in, in, in proxy wars. We have seen, um, you know, other kind of economic warfare. But direct front-to-front -front warfare since the invention of the nuclear weapon has not happened. And so this is basically um, why the game of chicken is, is the, the yeah. working theory yeah. that we're working with here. Yeah. So, so, so this is to, in regards to the posturing question. Um, the, the question on the decoupling, it will happen only in a few selective sectors. That's AI, it's quantum computing, it's semiconductors, and it's possibly on biotech. If you look at the other kind of statistics out there, mm. um, trade is not necessarily reducing between the US and China. There's still a lot of economic activity. And when you look at the measures that the US has put in place against, um, against Chinese um, sectors, they are focusing primarily on the semiconductors field for now. Yeah, And so this is where we're going to see both sides trying to decouple from each other. And why is that? Why is there decoupling in those particular sectors? Because for the US, um, the Chinese technological advance is the biggest yeah. threat, perceived threat. Yeah. And this is going to be become more accentuated next year. Um, and that is primarily because China is advancing faster than expected on mm -hmm. tech. So you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we had the launch of this new domestically produced yep. um, smartphone, Huawei phone, yep. which took uh, a lot of US lawmakers by surprise and then led to them tightening some of the export restrictions. We're going to see more of that, especially with AI. So I expect that we're, we're going to see more export controls in the in the near future. So there's kind of competitive element and there's a, maybe a security element Correct. there as well. Yeah. It has two elements, yes. Competitive, as you say, um, developmental and security and world, you know, who is the dominant power in the world. Those are the elements. Um, and then to your question about the, the hot war, I, I said that direct warfare is, is not very likely, but clearly it, it there are proxy wars that have happened in the past in mm. these kind of environments, right? There are tensions in the South China Sea. We have seen an increase in tensions in the South China Sea since the uh, violence erupted in the Middle East. There are tensions around Taiwan. We have an election coming up in January in Taiwan, which will likely usher in a more China hawkish government. Um, so, so there are rising risks, but overall, the same principle still holds right now and in the next 12 months. It makes little sense for any side to go into a direct clash. Uh, it makes little political sense mm. right now. And so um, that's why right now we, we think that those risks are contained. Okay. Um, so could you tell me, Emma, how much do you buy into the, um, the globalization narrative? That's, that's a word we hear a lot these days. Um, do, do you think the world is genuinely fragmenting or, or is the theme being over, overplayed to an extent? So globalization is changing, that is true, but I don't like the term deglobalization because the alliances are changing too, right? They're not just, we're not just seeing them stopping, they're changing. For example, um, there are actually quite a lot of winners from the current geopolitical realignment, like countries that are benefiting from the new supply chains and resource diversifications. Is that deglobalization? No, it's basically trade rerouting. Mm. So you're adding stops along the way. Um, then we have a lot of new security treaties that actually are, um, so for example, the US with the Philippines, where the security element is only one part of the, of, the, of the thing. And there are a lot of investment promises alongside it. So the security treatment, it, it, treaties are, in a way, the new trade deals, right? 
And so this goes to the question, is this a, a, you know, a, a world in where we're seeing deglobalization? I think that's the wrong term. Mm. I think globalization is changing. Yes, we're seeing more protectionism. We are seeing as a result of you know, trade groups getting longer and as a result of more protectionism, we are seeing costs go, going up. Um, and politicians and businesses are accepting these higher costs mm. for security purposes. But I don't think deglobalization is the right word. I think globalization is changing and it's bringing winners and losers. Okay, if you could choose a word, what would you choose? Basically, each is after their own interests, which is not a catchy phrase, I have to say. <laughs> I, I'm going to think about one and I'll come back to you. <laughs> okay, okay, let's move on from that. Um, could you tell me, what, what do you think the other... We've, we've covered some of the big themes, I think. Um, could you tell me, what do you think are some of the other key geopolitical risks investors need to be aware of at this time? So we're just um, thinking about our outlook for 2024. And I mean, the, I, clearly, the, you know, the, the geopolitical changes that we have seen since the, the war started in, in Ukraine um, and since China kind of came out as a more powerful player on the, on the global stage, they are continuing to play out next year. And mm. they're continuing to play out to the detriment of the West. Because as uh, the West, and I'm using the term broadly, but let's say the US and, and um, Europe are, are trying to, to navigate this environment, they're being stretched in all kinds of directions. The unity is being tested. And mm. um, the, the current situation in the Middle East is also not helping their efforts to appeal to the global South. So the, the big risk next year is going to be for, for the West to stay united in light of the geopolitical realignment continuing in light of other powers like Iran and Russia seeking to undermine them and in light of very important elections we have lots of elections I next was year just going to ask yes. you that exact question exactly. we've got the US presidential election this year we've got one in the UK as well actually Correct. we have the US we have European um, Parliament elections which mm. means nothing's going to happen in the European Commission for most of next year at a time when they really should be doing stuff right mm. because um, we have elections in Russia, we have elections in Ukraine, we have elections in South Africa. Um, so there are a lot of important, in India as well, right? Mm -hmm. So we, it's, it's, this is a, a very high profile election year. And those elections mean that countries that are having elections coming up are going to be preoccupied with their own problems, domestic issues, and cannot divert as much attention to, to international issues, whereas right now they really should be doing that. Um, also, especially in the US, the risk that we have a, a return of, of Donald Trump is, is real and problematic, especially for Europe at this point. And so you have this dynamic where the US on the one hand is trying to keep allies close, mm -hmm. but on the other hand, it also poses a big risk to them. Yeah. So those are just some of the, um, the, the kind of big picture things to watch. I, I would also say, you know, we have gone into some of the the possible geopolitical you know, challenges that we're seeing across all of the scenarios that we have devised for 2024, be it um, US-China, China-Taiwan, Russia-Ukraine, our downside scenarios are bigger. The likelihoods of them are bigger. So we just have higher odds mm. of downside risks materializing. So it's it's and I just I like to mention at this point that I'm actually an optimistic analyst. Okay, okay. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it, but I really am. Um, so I often err on the side of being too optimistic. So the the fact that I'm and I'm saying this because it um, 
to add gravity to what I'm trying to explain, it's there are a lot of challenges out there in 2024 from a geopolitical um, perspective, and that will require investors to really play, uh, you know, close attention to detail in order to know how to position your investments at a specific point in time. Because there are also opportunities arising, right? It's about timing more than anything. Could, could we talk a little bit about then that then? Um, you say you're an optimist. You're obviously going to look for the positive side of things. Are there kind of any upsides that you can see for um, the foreseeable future? Yes. So the first one, and that's, you know... Um, not necessarily an upside, but I always say so that the the the, be, that the base case is that the downside will not materialize. Okay, so that's the upside in a way that the downside will not materialize. Our base case that that developments will not boil over um, mm -hmm. is still the base case. Yeah, that's an important thing. So that's an upside for you. But in this uh, geopolitical realignment, there are also quite a lot of winners, and we have to spot them if we want to you know, make a return on the investments as well. Um, there are the winners, uh, the countries that are benefiting from the need to diversify away from China and from Russia, right? from a resource um, perspective, from a supply chain perspective, but also from China having to diversify away from the US, mm. right? because for Chinese investors in the US, it's getting more difficult too. So that's an opportunity for Europe, yeah, clearly. And um, then there are the countries at the center of new supply chain routes in Asia, uh, rich in natural resources in Latin America, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and as I said before already, there are the countries that are benefiting from being, you know, um, coveted by the US and by China. Mm -hmm. They're improving their negotiating positions. They're signing new treaties, new deals. They're mm -hmm. getting more for the, you know, they're getting a lot more attention now. Beforehand, mm -hmm. they, no one really cared. Now they're getting more investments. So those are winners. We have the countries that are winning from a, a bigger role in the geopolitical puzzle, like India, right? Mm. Everyone now wants to be a friend, you know, wants to do business with India. So they are emerging as new poles in the geopolitical world order, and they're benefiting from this as well. So all in all, there are these kind of different pockets, mm -hmm. the, uh, the diversification winners, the influence winners, and the defense winners. Yeah, oh. And we just have to really dig deep into where are they, who are they, um, and you know how, how solid are the economic fundamentals as well in those countries to take advantage of them. Okay, sure. Just maybe one um, point to finish on. We have a European audience, and you mentioned that Europe could be a diversification winner. Just when you've got outline uh, what how you feel that's the case and what areas they might be a diversification winner? Yes, so um, so clearly with China, I would say, um, for the simple fact that tensions between China and the US are, you know, are there to stay, they're unlikely going to go down, which means that European investments in China are going to be safer than American investments in China. Mm. So equally, Chinese investments in Europe are going to be safer than in the US for the most part. So in a way, um, Europe is trying to, to align itself to some degree with the US position, but not entirely. They're trying to maintain a good working relationship with China at the same time. And it's a balancing act, right? Because uh, there's also um, awareness about um, you know, possible challenges future down the line. But in this gray zone, there are opportunities. Okay. for European investors and countries. Yeah. Okay, sure. Okay, well, thanks for a fascinating discussion today, Anna.